The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, January 22nd, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I'm not agoraphobic. I'm just hunkering in place. It's nice that the news media gives us that out. I wish they could do it for other social anxieties. Anyway, Chris Christie, he's not agoraphobic, but he ain't going home. He is not returning to New Jersey. He is staying in New Hampshire, even though a giant storm bears down on his state of New Jersey. Because really, has any elected official ever suffered by not managing snow? I mean, that's never happened, right? I mean, why would Chris Christie go home, okay? Sure, he's only polling at 8% in New Hampshire, but if you look at his favorable, unfavorable ratings, in New Jersey, they're terrible. They're 32 to 59. He's underwater by 27% more unfavorable. And he used to be unfavorable on the national stage, but he really worked at it in New Hampshire. He really tried in New Hampshire, and he turned it around. He's now 39 points more favorable than unfavorable in New Hampshire. Even in Iowa, Chris Christie's favorability number, according to the Des Moines Register Bloomberg poll, is 51%. That's up from 29% in August, right? In New Hampshire, as I said, he's 39 points more favorable. Why go to the place that doesn't like? you just because you're the governor of that place. Stay in the place that likes you. That's what I say. On the spiel today, more politics, some ridiculous attempts to denigrate Donald Trump from the right, and a new documentary about Anthony Weiner pretty much gives me license to act like a fifth grader. But first, what men get charged with when they get charged with domestic abuse? News that Track Palin, son of the former vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin, beat his girlfriend, kicked his girlfriend, threatened his own life with a gun and was belligerent to police and intoxicated, circulated last week. And I tweeted, how is it that Track Palin or anyone can punch his girlfriend and get charged with a misdemeanor? And the responses I got on Twitter were, forget it, Mike, it's Alaska, privilege, he's white, and famous last name. But those are actually all wrong. A few people did tweet me saying, that's just what usually happens under the law. So I started to do a little research and I was quite surprised to see that, yes, it is. Well, joining me now is Jane Anderson. She's a former prosecutor from the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office. She's now with Equitas, the attorney advisor with Equitas, the prosecutor's resource on violence against women. Hello, Jane. Hi, thank you. And I, of course, understand the Track Palin case specifically is pending, but I want to talk about in general, uh, given what we know about such a case, which is that there was a man striking a woman with a fist and also a kick, what would the charge be in most jurisdictions? You're correct that in most jurisdictions, that level of violence would not rise past a misdemeanor charge of assault or battery. Why? Well, um, there are many different degrees on any charge of assault or battery. They're going to range from misdemeanors to serious felonies, and it's going to depend on a couple of things. One of them is going to be whether a weapon, or in Alaska, a dangerous instrument is used in the course of the violence. So um, if a gun or knife is involved, that may rise the level of degree to a felony. Right. So a gun in, you know, I'm not only talking about track. So we should say a gun was involved, but it was never pointed at the victim. The gun was present and he pointed it at his own head. 
Yes, the yeah. gun or weapon would have to be used or threatened to be used against the victim. Got it. Also, you're going to look at the level of injury. So most states will have some sort of legal definition of what level of injury is going to raise the degree of seriousness. So some states will define it as serious bodily injury. Alaska uses the term serious physical injury. And then usually there'll be case law or precedent that will sort of explain what they mean by that definition of serious physical injury. It usually is something that's going to include broken bones, Mm -hmm. some open wound, maybe something like that. And then also you're going to look at the state of mind that's involved. So um, different statutes are going to talk about recklessness versus intentional versus carelessness or negligent behavior. And that may also affect the degree of crime that's charged. Now, I understand that bar fight, one guy pops another in the eye. Maybe you want to charge that as a misdemeanor. I think that a domestic case is a lot different, but it seems that now the law doesn't treat it so differently. Is the law lagging behind what we know about domestic abuse? Well, a lot of what I think you're probably referring to when we talk about domestic abuse is the fact that this is usually not an isolated incident. Domestic violence and overt violence is usually just one part of a larger scale relationship. And that domestic violence relationship can include emotional abuse, financial abuse, and all of that is really about power and control over a long term. So the law doesn't really have a way to address those abuses that are taking part over time. I will say that in some states, there are statutes that allow for repeated batterers or someone that's been convicted before to then be charged with a felony for subsequent batteries. And that's something that can be used by prosecutors when we are talking about somebody that's involved in an ongoing violent relationship with their intimate partner. What about man versus woman? Does the law not... I guess you could make a feminist argument (laughs) that they couldn't. Yet on the other hand, it seems to me a little bit different than strangers in a bar again. I mean, it's hard to legally define things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the only places where the law does allow you to make those types of considerations are when we're talking about an analysis of self-defense or an analysis of prominent aggressor. Mm -hmm. And so police officers, prosecutors are allowed to take into consideration um, relevant size and the overreaching sort of relationship of power and control and the dynamics that are going into that. Right, and that wasn't, again, this is not only about track, but that wasn't uh, here. But uh, if we remember the famous Ray Rice and his uh, now-wife, Janae, that came into play, the charge that uh, she was violent too, and prosecutors, although there was no jail time or actually serious charges there. Yeah, and that's a real change. I mean, I think even now today, a lot of people have the assumption that it's the initial aggressor. So in a case where, you know, there's maybe a verbal altercation and then uh, some physical response by um, the victim in the case that then is escalated. No longer do the prosecutors and investigators just sort of say, okay, who touched who first? But they can look at the totality of the circumstances and the nature of the relationship. So because this is a misdemeanor, does this mean that the guns that we know are present in the House can't be taken away? Not necessarily. Many states, and including um, there are also federal laws that dictate uh, who can and cannot legally possess a gun. 
one of those limitations are if you are convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence or if there's a protection order in place that relates to domestic violence relationships. So there are implications for the firearms in this case. But if it was a felony, would that alone preclude someone from owning a gun, conviction of a felony? Yes. Often the court really doesn't do anything. There's a little bit of slap on the wrist and not a lot of follow-up. That must be a bigger problem than everything we've been talking about. If the victim doesn't believe the criminal justice system is going to keep them safe and provide for them what they really need and want, as a victim of domestic violence, then they're not going to be engaged in the system. And you almost have a chilling effect of people not wanting to come forward if the system isn't going to work for them. So that's really, I think, more important because these crimes of domestic violence, even in very serious cases, these are still people that the victims loved, that they have shared families and lives with, that they have shared children with, and so there needs to be something on the other end of that, no matter if the sentence or non-sentence is five days or five years, we have to keep looking forward and thinking, how are we going to make this victim safe and um, provide for them? Jane Anderson, former prosecutor from the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office, also now the attorney advisor for Equitas, which is the prosecutor's resource on violence against women. Thank you, Jane. Thank you so much. And now the spiel, the winner of our discontent. Big news, the conservatives are up against Trump. So this populist hero, this hair-brained, crazy-haired firebrand, he's going to be undone by a New York-based periodical most associated with the patrician William F. Buckley. Wait, wait. Trump supporters are like, I really like this guy, but if public intellectuals, some of whom are affiliated with think tanks, are coming out against Donald Trump. Maybe I will have to rethink this. All right, I'm being a little bit unfair. Perhaps you could make the case that conservatives aligning against Trump could be a problem for Trump. Actually, if you look at his polls, his big strength isn't with conservatives. It's with, well, people who would call themselves moderates or independent. A lot of them are low-information voters, people who maybe don't show up for every election, people who don't like the reality TV. I've gone through, I haven't read all 4,552 articles in the New Republic's Against Trump special edition, but... I have read they have the symposium up top where big names tell you in short sentences what their cases are. So what I was looking for this, wasn't looking for the insults that we could get anywhere, though some are fun. I wasn't looking for an argument like he doesn't pass litmus tests. That's up to conservatives. What I was looking for is here is a conservative ideal And here is where Donald Trump does not meet this ideal. Here is where Donald Trump's stated policies differ from conservatism in a bad way. There was very little of that. Now, I'm a little sympathetic to the editors of the National Review. It's hard to actually know what Trump really does think, so they can go back and find instances, and this is part of the case against Trump, that he gave a lot to Democratic politicians. This is on the record. 
This is not a reason why any of the people who are voting for him are going to vote for him. In fact, I don't think the people who support him know a lot, but I do think they know that Hillary Clinton was at his wedding. He says it a lot. He's kind of proud of it, and he spun it to say, I'm a pragmatist. I got to keep the politicians in my pocket. Doesn't that indict the politicians more than anyone else? Let's go through a couple of the headlines, the, the main arguments against Trump. Brett Bozell put forth, quote, a real conservative walks with us. Ronald Reagan read National Review and Human Events for Intellectual Sustenance. All right, Trump's reading list is at issue. Not a huge issue when Sarah Palin was running for president and couldn't say she read anything. Also, Brett Bozell does get a paycheck from National Review and Human Events. That's kind of Trumpian, actually, supporting the brands that support you. Glenn Beck, a man with little baggage that I could think of, points out, Here are three policies that provided the fuel that lit the Tea Party fire. The stimulus, the auto bailouts, and the bank bailouts. Barack Obama supported all three. So did Donald Trump. That's true. Donald Trump supported all those things that Barack Obama did. What else do those three programs have in common? They worked. Doesn't this burnish, I'm conservative, might not like it. Conservatives are still arguing with a couple of them, mostly not the bank bailouts, by the way. But wouldn't Donald Trump say, yeah, this is why I'm better than a doctrinaire conservative. I back the things that work. David Boaz of the Cato Institute says that Donald Trump's nativism and his promise of one-man rule are important. In his little part of this symposium, he talked, as a libertarian, he talked about the troubling aspect of Trump that he was against immigration. But so many of the other contributors are just as against immigration as Donald Trump. There was this thing where it was 10, 20, 44 people arguing against Donald Trump, but there were so many instances where they were arguing with themselves. Eric Erickson quotes St. Paul, the man, not the city, and wrote, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with deceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And that was from one or maybe first Timothy 3.16. Mark Helprin writes, compared with the weight of the office he seeks, his deals are microscopic in scale. And as he faced far deeper complexities, he would lead the country into continual Russian roulette. I thought this, by the way, was an excellent point. Halperin made some good points against how Trump talks about his qualifications. They don't qualify you at all. If you don't know what the nuclear triad is, that's a bad thing. But I thought the richest complaint came from one of the loudest and most important voices, Bill Kristol. And he cited Leo Strauss, famous conservative, in a letter to National Review, wrote that, quote, a conservative, I take it, is a man who despises vulgarity. But the argument, which is concerned exclusively with calculations of success and is based on blindness to the nobility of the effort, is vulgar. That is no reason why anyone who likes Trump should turn against him. And by the way, Bill Crystal on a boat cruise to Alaska while he was with the Weekly Standard, it was a boat cruise of the National Review and the Weekly Standard, came upon this recently in office governor, and her name was Sarah Palin. And she, and he, he primary among conservative thinkers said, she should be elevated to the national stage. Without Bill Crystal on that boat cruise, we would not know of this Sarah Palin today. And if you want to talk about vulgarity, well, I'll let Leo Strauss have the last word. So it would seem that the marriage between the conservative movement and Donald Trump is on rocky grounds. 
Meanwhile, meanwhile, another political marriage is poised to make waves on the presidential campaign trail. This one between Hillary Clinton confidant Huma Abedin and her scandal-scarred husband, Anthony Weiner. Weiner, yes, you delighted to Weiner the congressman. You were dismissive of Weiner the mayoral candidate. You're perhaps captivated by Weiner the sexter. And if you're of a certain stripe like me, you're endlessly enthralled by the possibility of Weiner the surname. But now it is time for Weiner the documentary. Dylan Stableford of Yahoo writes, quote, Weiner could become another unwelcome distraction for Hillary Clinton, which I think is not true, but is, let's face it, an acknowledgement of the impossibility of not making a Weiner pun. Whenever you put that name Weiner in someone's mouth, crazy things happen. But why the potency? Why the power? Why the thrust of Weiner? Well, to hear filmmaker Elise Steinberg tell it, the documentary does reveal the real Weiner. But here we get a front row seat as it happens. I think that the film pulls back the curtain. And who doesn't want to pull back the curtain on Wiener? Surprisingly, there's some thought that big political players want to stuff Wiener in the hope that Wiener withers in darkness. Experts say since Aberdeen is a top advisor to Hillary Clinton and Mrs. Clinton views her as a surrogate daughter, it will damage the campaign. Oh, really? Well, I'm here to throw cold water on Wiener. The idea that Wiener is not just going to shrink due to neglect. Although, there is already some Wiener blowback. New York Daily News reports that, quote, a new documentary about Anthony Wiener's political collapse was cut to remove scenes showing Hillary Clinton's camp urging top aide Huma Abedin to kick her sex-texting husband to the curb. That's wrong. Because I think we, as moviegoers, we want the uncut Wiener. We can get our arms around the full wiener, can't we? Well, we'll see after Sundance, because they want a theatrical release. That's right, they want to release wiener wide. Now, I think critics might just roast wiener. They might slice and dice wiener. And also from a marketing standpoint, wiener needs to be handled gently. Wiener needs to be treated with kid gloves. You know, not since Oscar Mayer has a company been so obsessed with wiener rollout. All right, I, I got to apologize for that. I really hate making puns. Anyway, I do think, however, if you handle Wiener right, if you handle Wiener delicately, if you not push Wiener too hard, make the audience know that Wiener's there. Don't let Wiener just dangle out there, but at the same time, not force Wiener down anyone's throat, but convince them to embrace Wiener. Then I predict that Wiener is going to pop. So will it be an election issue? Well, I think voters will have consumed and digested Wiener, and some will turn away from Wiener, but others will be quite excited about Wiener. As for the man himself, if I were Wiener, I'd, I'd grab Wiener. I'd own Wiener. This Wiener is my Wiener, I'd say, and Wiener can rise to the occasion. You know, Wiener's been hardened. Wiener's been hardened by politics. Wiener's been hardened by media. And I covered him, and I think I can say that many in the media rubbed Wiener the wrong way. But Wiener's been especially hardened by new media, the internet. And we've all seen that, and we all know what happens there. When a stiffened, purposeful, almost angry Wiener sets his eye on a prize, I'll tell you, you can't just brush off Wiener. You gotta embrace Wiener, lest Wiener overwhelm you and drive you to distraction. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi shelters in place of wandering aimlessly in the snow. 
Steve Licktig, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is experiencing 18 to 24 inches of intrigue as he delves into a binge listen of The Message. Panoply Chief Content Officer Andy Bowers has salted his driveway so much it is diabetes. The gist, we're expecting loads of the white stuff. Oh wait, the Oscars aren't for more than a month. Umpuru, depuru, dupuru, and thanks for listening.